My sermon text this morning is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Ebiud, and Ebiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, even this genealogy. This is your word, Lord, and we are your people, the sheep of your pasture, so we would humbly ask that you would feed your sheep from your word, for it is true food. Help us to see what is plain and clear here, Help us to see also what might be hidden. And may all that be done for the name and fame of the Lord Jesus, the Son of David, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, first let me say that it was a real joy this past Wednesday um, to join up with a number of you as we went caroling over at the Central Market nearby. I was very encouraged. For those of you who were able to come out, I hope that you were encouraged as well. I know we didn't encounter throngs of people there, but it was great to sing those Advent and Christmas hymns in a public setting, proclaiming the gospel of the incarnation. And it was a way, of course, of us spreading the aroma of Christ and welcoming those outside our church to join us. I think some of you even grabbed some of the flyers, which again are out on the table in the foyer. Um, I invite you to take those with you this week and invite your neighbors and friends and co-workers. But I know a number of you passed those out along with me, inviting people to our upcoming Lessons and Carols this Friday. You know, every Christmas, the church is presented with a unique opportunity to extend the welcome of Jesus 
to those outside the church. Of course, different churches have different ways of extending this welcome. There are, first of all, the more seeker-sensitive churches that actually design their worship services so that they appeal to outsiders, so that they are even designed for unbelievers. And while that may be well-meaning, and I think it is, I'm not a fan of that approach. I think it's built on the faulty assumption that worship is for unbelievers. And typically, it turns worship into an experience that's gauged by how people feel, by how the worshiper feels. Seeker-sensitive churches, they tend to also, of course, dumb down theology to the lowest common denominator, and I think they put very low expectations on people concerning their personal piety and their pursuit of holiness. They promote an expression of faith that's a mile wide, maybe just an inch deep. But then also there are so-called missional churches. They are the churches, for instance, that say we're a church for the city. Now look, I think that every church in some sense ought to be a missional church, right? Every church ought to be a church that engages and influences the city. However, once again, missional churches, at least in my experience, they seem, while they seem to have more depth, they typically, of course, they lean left, they certainly punch left, and they often seem to express the priority of social justice issues over personal redemption and transformation. Look, I know that these are somewhat caricatures, right? And I'd be presenting a false dichotomy if I said that churches were simply either welcoming or not so welcoming. There are plenty of Reformed churches, for instance, that have adopted right on their website, sometimes on their order of worship, the following declaration. Maybe you're familiar with this. To all who are weary and seek rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who struggle and desire victory, to all who sin and need a savior, to all who are strangers and want a home, to all who hunger and thirst for justice and peace, and to all who will come. This church opens wide her doors and offers welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I like that statement very much. Now, I'm not proposing that we need to stick it on our website or maybe our order of worship, but I think it does reflect our mentality. I hope it does and our approach to welcoming those who do come to us. But let's be honest, some churches, I don't think that's true of them. Some churches prove to be more insular. You know, I do wonder whether the seeker-sensitive movement that's focused on outsiders has influenced some churches to become actually unfriendly. The church is never meant to be unfriendly to outsiders or certainly not insular. While we may not be called to be a church for the city, I think it's always better to be a church for Christ. But that means that we should never be a church for ourselves, right? Again, that's why I was so encouraged to get out there with you this past week and sing in public. By the way, this is not meant to be a guilt trip on those who were not able to join us, right? Hope you will be able to join us. We're going to keep doing that, I think, every year because it was so uplifting. But... I also understand that this takes place in quiet corners in our church. We have a group of guys, for instance, that regularly sing psalms in a cigar lounge of all places, right? If you're interested in that, see James Lewis. <laughs> it's not an operation of the church, but an operation of one of our members. 
And many of you have told me already that you plan to invite your friends to our lessons and carols. That's wonderful. We need to keep inviting and welcoming people into our fellowship because Jesus is for all kinds of people. Jesus came for all kinds of people. This, this morning, I want us to look at the kinds of people that Jesus came for. But in order to do that, we're going to look at the people that Jesus came from. Now, that may sound a little strange, but I do believe that looking at, Jesus, at who Jesus came from will tell us who he came for. Who Jesus comes from tell, tells us who he came for. So let's take a look at this genealogy. Actually, to be more precise and to focus in, I want to draw our attention to four names that were subtly embedded in the genealogy. Besides Mary, there are four women listed here. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, or the wife of Uriah. By the way, this list of women, it's no accident. Matthew is intentionally mentioning them and we're meant to, to notice them. They do stand out to us. First of all, women would not be listed ordinarily in a royal lineage, which is what this is. Actually, no Jew of that day would list any women in any genealogy. And even if a woman were to be listed, these four women, they do seem especially out of place, don't they? I mean, think about it. Why list Tamar and Rahab and the wife of Uriah? instead of Sarah and Leah or Abigail. I think we expect paragons of virtue and righteousness. Instead, we get a list of four foreign women, some of whom are of suspect character. These four, all four, are outsiders. They're outsiders who find mention eventually in the lineage of our Lord. I call them outsiders because each one is a foreigner, or in the case of Bathsheba, related to a foreigner. It's interesting that Bathsheba isn't called Bathsheba, but rather the wife of Uriah. And you remember what Uriah was known as, Uriah the Hittite. She has a Hebrew name, so she must be a Jewess, but she was married to a non-Jew. And at least some of these women were marked by sexual sin. Rahab was a prostitute. Tamar committed incest. Bathsheba, admittedly, she was forced into it. But she committed adultery, some might say. And Ruth, well, there was maybe some suspicion around Ruth. Let's just say she made herself available, right? In this regard, even Mary was under suspicion. Recall that the Pharisees once said to Jesus, we were not born of sexual immorality. Right? We have Abraham as our father. I think the implication is that they consider Jesus to be from illegitimacy. We don't know who your daddy is. Oh, yeah, right, a virgin birth, sure. You get the point. These four women, they were outsiders, and many of them had a poor reputation. But Jesus came to seek and to save outsiders who others thought were not worthy of being included. So then I'd like to spend the next few minutes introducing us to each of these mothers of Jesus, if you will. And we'll see that Tamar was mistreated by God's people. Rahab was an enemy of God's people. 
Ruth was a foreigner to God's people, and Bathsheba was simply exploited. Not by God's people, but by the Lord's anointed. First then is Tamar. Tamar is mentioned here in verse 3 as having given birth to twins via Judah. But Judah was not her husband. Judah was her father-in-law. It's a sordid story. You can read about it in Genesis 38. There we find that Judah had turned aside from his brothers. He had separated from his family. And he had taken a Canaanite woman. And he had three sons by that woman. Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Judah then proceeded to get a wife for his oldest son, Ur, and that was Tamar. Now, the reason most scholars assume that Tamar is a Canaanite is that if Judah lived among the Canaanites and he married one, do you think he'd prioritize getting an Israelite wife, an Israelite bride for his son? I don't think so. In any case, Ur was wicked, so the Lord put him to death. And then, because of the Leverite customs and laws that were in place that the people followed, the responsibility fell to the next son, Onan, to assume Tamar as his wife. But the text says that Onan, impregnate, uh, Onan refused to impregnate Tamar, even though he had no problem letting her satisfy his desires. So the Lord put him to death also. Judah then told Tamar, Look, just stay under my roof and wait until Sheila, my youngest, grows old enough to marry you, then I'll give him to you, and you can have an opportunity to have children. Now, what we have to appreciate in that time is that children were not just a heritage. They were the way that you were cared for later in life. Becoming a widow without children in the ancient Near East was a death sentence. So here we have Tamar. She's now a widow twice over. She's a good bit older than Sheila, and as time passes, because time did pass, it says that Judah's wife passed away. Sheila grows up, and Tamar realizes he's not going to be given to her in marriage. Judah's not going to keep his promise. So Tamar takes matters into her own hands. She dresses up like a prostitute, but she conceals her identity so that no one will know who she is, and she makes herself strategically available to Judah, her father-in-law. And he takes the bait. He asks to sleep with her. She agrees to lie with him for a payment, a goat, which he promises to send along. But because Judah can't be trusted at his word, she asks for a pledge for that payment. She asks for his, his signet, his cord, his staff. These were personal identifiers, much like a wallet. And of course, he gives these to her. And he sleeps with her. And she conceives the twins that Matthew speaks about here. But Judah's none the wiser, so in time he sends the goat that he had promised to get back his ID. They can't find the woman. He figures it's better maybe just to drop the matter so that he won't become a laughingstock. And a few months pass. And Tamar now starts to show, <clears throat> and it becomes clear that she's been with a man. She's been immoral. And so Judah is incensed. He demands that she be executed, that she be burned in the fire. And that's when Tamar presents Judah with the signet and the cord and the staff and says that by the man to whom these belong, 
I'm pregnant. And when Judah sees these, you know what his expression is, what he exclaims? She's more righteous than I. You know what? He's right. She is more righteous than Judah. Think about that. Tamar seduced her father-in-law into an incestuous act and then entrapped him. But what he did was worse. And I'm, I'm not talking about paying for a prostitute, though that's a terrible sin. What Judah did was he treated Tamar, a member of his own family, a member of his household, as if she was a foreigner. He treated her with contempt and neglect. Tamar was an outsider, but she had been brought near. Even though she was a Canaanite by birth, by marriage, she should have had the right to all the covenant privileges of God. Yet Judah treated her like an outsider and an afterthought. And while I'm not saying that what Tamar did was right or righteous, she, she would not be denied her place among the people of God. Tamar would have her place in the line of our Lord. Jesus comes from Tamar. He's not ashamed to have her as one of his mothers. And what that tells me is that Jesus took on flesh in order to save people like Tamar. Jesus came to save people who were outsiders, who maybe have been brought near to the church, even if the church has neglected or mistreated them. You know, we have to be honest, sometimes people in the church are damaged by the church. Sometimes so-called outsiders don't know if they really belong in the church because they receive mixed signals. Maybe they don't come from a Christian family. Maybe they don't have the, the right heritage. Maybe they don't know all the customs. But they're in the church. They're trying to figure it out. And when they joined the church or received, were received by the church, they were promised that they would be cared for, that they would be loved. But their experience proves to be something different. Instead, they're hurt by the very people that were supposed to accept them. How often have we heard that people don't want to be part of the church because the church is just full of hypocrites? Now look, I understand that people today often play the victim card, right? They use excuses to stay away from the church, but the truth is that sometimes the church is guilty of neglecting and hurting its own. We need to be a church that cares for the least of these among us because Jesus cares for these people. Remember that Jesus intentionally sought out a Samaritan woman. Samaritans, they were, they were people of mixed ethnicity. They were Jews who had intermarried with Gentiles like Tamar. And for this reason, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They, they considered them dirty people. They would have no dealings with them, even though they were right there amongst them. If you wanted to avoid them, you had to go around them. But what did Jesus do? He went through Samaria. And there he engaged the Samaritan woman at a well. How often in the Bible do you read that a husband finds his bride at a well, right? That's what we're meant to see there in John 4. And even though this woman that he meets is a sinner, right? She's had five marriages and she's now living with a sixth man. Jesus doesn't give up on her. 
She's a hardened woman. She's probably been let down in life. Maybe you know someone like that, a family member. When Jesus tries to talk to her, she's evasive, she's elusive. Probably doesn't want to let her guard down, but Jesus persists with her. He makes himself vulnerable and extends himself to her. And eventually she's overwhelmed by his interest in her and his compassion for her. Come, come, she goes into town. She says, come see a man who told me everything I did and still talk to me. Could this be the Christ? And she becomes a great evangelist for the Samaritans. Many turn and follow Jesus because of her witness. Jesus came to save the Samaritan woman. He came to save people like Tamar and people like Rahab. I mean, if Tamar was mistreated by God's people, Rahab was a true outsider. She was the enemy of God's people. Like Tamar, Rahab was a Canaanite, but Rahab was a city of Jericho. And now the sin of the Amorites had reached its fullness. The wickedness had piled up to heaven. And so the Lord had determined that he was going to destroy these people utterly. And of course, Rahab was a prostitute. Just think about how bad a person Rahab really was. I mean, she's a pagan prostitute in an era where often they mixed idolatry, right? Demon worship with fornication. She had probably in her lifetime abandoned a child or three or four, right? I mean, how likely is it that a prostitute in those days would have avoided conceiving a child? If there had been safe and legal abortions in her day, she probably would have been a great patron of Planned Parenthood, right? This is a sinful woman. But a sinful woman who by God's grace took hold of God's people. She didn't have a, a foot in the door like Tamar. She was a true outsider, but by faith she found her place in the line of Christ as well. She hid those Israelite spies because she feared God and wanted to be counted among the elect. Jesus saved sinners like Rahab. Remember the sinful woman? Yes, also a prostitute, I'm almost certain. The sinful woman who came to Jesus as he was reclining at table with Simon the Pharisee. You remember the, the display of her con contrition, which really was a way of her showing forth her, her conversion. She washed Jesus' feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair. She anointed them with expensive perfume. Should she be included and welcomed in the church? Simon thought not. But Jesus told Simon that this woman knew her sins were great, and because she was forgiven much, she loved much. Therefore, her sins, which are many, were forgiven. But he who's been forgiven little loves little, right? Rahab was desperately sinful. What she was involved in was practically demonic. But Jesus came to save women who were in the clutches of Satan himself. Remember Mary Magdalene? Right? He healed Mary Magdalene of seven demons 
and she became his follower. She followed him to the foot of the cross, and it was to her he first appeared when he rose from the dead. Mary Magdalene was forgiven much, and she loved much. What a, what a, a, a story of redemption the genealogy of Jesus displays for us. If I'm not mistaken, I think this is the only place in the Bible that tells us that Rahab is in the line of our Lord. We're richer for knowing that. Verse 5 says that Rahab was the grandmother of Boaz. Boaz is one of the best characters in all of the Bible, right? One of the most upright men that we can find in the Scriptures. What a difference a couple of generations can make when people whose sins are many are forgiven. And Boaz, of course, brings us to Ruth. Ruth wasn't a Canaanite, but she was also a foreigner. She was a Moabite. They, too, were foreigners to God's covenant. The Moabites, they also had an ominous origin. Genesis 19 says that the Moabites were descended from an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. This is one dysfunctional lineage, isn't it? Moabites, they were bad news for Israel. Moabite women, especially, they proved to be a stumbling block for Israelite men. Numbers 25 details how the Israelites on their way to the promised land were led into sexual immorality and idolatry by Moabite women. Maybe we should just steer clear of these Moabite women. Well, Ruth's a Moabite. There's strike one. She had married an Israelite who had gone down to Moab when there was a famine, but he died, which made her a widow, strike two. And after the famine, her mother-in-law, also a widow, strike three, decided to return to her homeland. Now, at this juncture, Ruth could have, look, she could have just taken pride in her ethnic identity, returned to her pagan roots. But instead, she clung to her mother-in-law saying, no, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Ruth was demonstrating great faith by sticking with Naomi. She was essentially giving up the best odds of finding a new husband. She's a foreign widow hitching her wagon to her widowed mother-in-law. Now, Ruth was not sexually immoral like Tamar or Rahab, but like them, she was very vulnerable. Not only was she a widow, she was extremely poor. When she and Naomi returned to Israel, they had nothing, right, and no one to provide for them. So Ruth had to go gleaning. You know what gleaning is, right? It's picking up the scraps that are left over. She had to go gleaning in the fields to feed the two of them. It would have been easy for Ruth to become invisible. But by faith, she fought, sought favor, and by grace... She found a redeemer. God rewarded the faith of this poor, invisible woman by providing her with a husband and a son. Let me ask you, are there women in our society like Ruth? Poor, invisible, pitiful? Living in homes full of women with no men, except for maybe the babies that they're caring for? Surviving on welfare? Listen, I, I do get it. Many of those women, they're not victims. They've made poor choices in life. 
But in many cases, they have been abandoned by men. They need redeemers. They need a redeemer. And I don't think we're called to have spite for them or to judge them harshly. Do we convey that Jesus loves them and that he's pursuing them and welcoming them into his body? Do we convey that Jesus has come into the world to save women like that? Remember the foreign woman from Matthew 15 who came to Jesus saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Mother and daughter. At first, Jesus didn't answer her at all. When she persisted, he finally said, look, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. It's not, to take, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. That sounds pretty harsh. But I think Jesus was actually just testing her because she replied, yes, Lord, but even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. <laughs> That's chutzpah takes bold faith to take hold of Christ and not let go of him. Heaven forbid if we would turn aside such women. And so Jesus says, woman, great your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Jesus, re he, he rewards bold faith. He honored Tamar, a widow who would not be left out, Rahab, an enemy who would not be destroyed, and Ruth, an alien who pursued a redeeming. And all three of these women were commended by their faith. Of Tamar, it was said what? She's more righteous than I. James claims that Rahab was justified by her works. And Boaz calls Ruth Eshet Hayil, worthy woman. You know where else we see that? Proverbs 31. Ruth is the Proverbs 31 woman. Because she took hold of her Redeemer, Ruth received a son, and she too found a place in the lineage of our Lord. She became the great-grandmother of great King David, which brings us to Bathsheba. You know, Bathsheba begins to break the mold, doesn't she? She's neither technically a foreigner nor a fornicator. I don't consider her such. I see how some might consider her one or both. She's listed not as Bathsheba, but as the wife of Uriah, which shows just how many Gentiles are incorporated into the line of Christ. And while I would personally consider her blameless in the affair with King David, I mean, what was she supposed to do? Say no to the king? In any case, her inclusion does display even more sexual immorality in the line of Christ. If Tamar was mistreated by God's people and Rahab was the enemy of God's people and Ruth was the foreigner to God's people, then Bathsheba was the exploited and abused. Not by God's people, but by the Lord's anointed. Think about that. King David, the so-called man after God's own heart, he stole another man's treasured possession and then he killed that man. Uriah the Hittite, who was, by the way, one of his mighty men of valor to cover his tracks. 
Bathsheba was exploited by the salacious desires of a selfish king. You know what's ironic about the intentional mention of Bathsheba as the wife of Uriah? I mean, again, why not call her Bathsheba? Doesn't calling her the wife of Uriah put David's sin front and center? I think that's what it's meant to do. It calls attention to David's sin, but this genealogy seems to go out of its way to champion David, right? David's mentioned at the beginning. Jesus is the son of David, and he's also, David, that is, is the significance of the number 14. 14 points to David. Matthew's employing something here called gematria. It's where numerical values are assigned to letters in an alphabet for an effect. And the name David has three Hebrew consonants. Dalit, Vav, Dalit. Dalit is the fourth letter of the alphabet, right? Vav is the sixth letter. And then you got another Dalit. Four plus six plus four is what? Fourteen. So we see that 14 points to David. Now David's kingdom and David's reign was a high point for Israel, wasn't it? But David proved to be a sinful man who took the wife of Uriah. So the point is that we need to keep looking for another one. We need to keep looking for a more perfect anointed one. Thankfully, we have a promise to rest upon. As we read earlier in our service, God had promised to David that he would raise up his offspring after him, someone who would come from his own body, his own lineage, whose throne God would establish forever. But that didn't happen overnight. Turns out we need another 14 and another. And yet if the first 14 generations got us to David, the next 14 shows us the decline of the Davidic dynasty, and the third 14 shows us that the promise to David looked to be almost extinguished. These people are in exile. But three 14s is how many sevens? You do the math, yeah? It's six. Which means that with the arrival of Jesus, we enter the seventh seven. Here, finally, is the man in whom we can rest. Earlier in our service, we sang that Jesus appeared a flower bright when half spent was the night. I'm not sure that totally captures it. I think the arrival of Jesus is more like the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Jesus is the end. He's the completion of all that's been anticipated from the promises given to the patriarchs. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises to David. He's the royal one who was to come. Look, he comes from a long list of other kings who, because of their sin, have died and are buried. But Jesus, who is alive, reigns forever. And therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, whoever they might be. Jesus is calling all kinds of people. This Christmas, 
May we fling open wide our doors and offer welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to all who are weary and seek rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who struggle and desire victory, to all who sin and need a Savior, to all who are strangers and want a home, to all who hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice, and to any who will come. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for showing us the humble and even humiliated lineage of your son. For certainly he has come to earth to taste our sadness and he has even come to earth to take on sin for us. So help us cling to Jesus and him alone as our only confidence. And may we this season, Lord, may we extend the hope of Jesus to those who are outside, who are dying and in need of him. May you be pleased to expand your church, not for our glory, but for the name and sake of Jesus, your son, in whose name we pray. Amen.